It's time to sit back, relax, and listen to Conversations with Joan. Conversations with Joan will inspire, motivate, and empower you. Live your best life now. Listen, learn, think, and decide. And now, here's your host, Joan Herman. Welcome to Change Your Attitude, Change Your Life's Conversations with Joan. I'm Joan Herman. Thanks for tuning in. Conversations with Joan focuses on topics that are important to your life, from health and wellness to professional development to personal well-being. Change makers join me to share their insights, tips, and strategies so you can thrive and live your best life now. Thank you for taking time for yourself, and thank you for letting us be a part of your life. Now, let's start talking. Finding out you have cancer can be devastating. Feelings of depression, anxiety, and fear are common. Today's guest, Douglas Wick, was diagnosed with late-stage leukemia. His journey from diagnosis to today is inspiring, and it offers hope to anyone traveling the same road. Welcome, Doug. Thank you so much for joining us. Honored to be here. Thank you, Joan. So, Doug, let's start at the beginning. What were you experiencing when you were diagnosed? Were you having any health issues at the time? I was having some uh, minor issues. Well, with my, uh, I had been diagnosed with uh, type two diabetes, and um, I couldn't get my levels, my blood sugar levels down, and been working on it for weeks. And uh, the night, the night before I actually did a blood test, I was um, at a basketball game with my son, and uh, climbing up the stairs, my my uh, legs felt like um, like they were, you know, uh, lead in them. And um, so I was I was concerned and worried about that. And when I went in to do the blood test the next day, um, I you know was ho- hoping to find out what the uh, what the verdict was. And when the doctor uh, called me back later that afternoon, uh, he had indicated to me that I had I had to get to the hospital immediately, get to the emergency room uh, because my I was anemic. I my blood levels uh, you know were about half of what they should be for a person my size. So. Um, that that's what was immediately, um, you know, causing the, the concern and why I had to go to the hospital and when I found out I had uh, cancer. Doug, when was the last blood test you had before that time? Did this happen quickly? Yeah, it, it seemed to happen really quickly. And um, I, I couldn't even tell you when the last blood test was at least six months or maybe even a year since, uh, you know, before, um, before it happened. Yeah. So everything was looking good at that time. So when you ended up going to the hospital and they did extensive studies, what did they find? Um, they found out the, you know, I was in the hospital overnight on a Friday night. I, I you know, went in. I'd never been really into the hospital ever before. Uh, and, uh, you know, they did tests on me, uh, you know, gave me transfusions to hopefully bring the, you know, my blood levels back up to the appropriate level. And uh, the next morning, the doctor came in and um, matter of factly announced that I, you know, it appeared I had acute myeloid leukemia. And at that same time, he told me that it looked like I'd probably have to be in the hospital for uh, up to a year, and uh, which was devastating to me. I, I can remember just being uh, both shocked and angry at the time because I was, the, you know, the sole breadwinner for our family. And I didn't know, you know, I had two young children at the time uh, and uh, wasn't sure how I was going to be able to navigate that, you know. So it was, uh, it was just, yeah, devastating, to say the least. Yeah. Why did he say you would have to be in the hospital for a year? 
Um, well, that's normally the treatment for acute myeloid leukemia. Um, you you get put into a private room uh, because of the uh, they they have to reduce your blood levels so low for the uh, uh, cancer treatment that you just have to be isolated. And uh, he said usually that's what the length of time that most patients are in for. And that is if they do eventually get cured. And he did add that to that you know statement that you know if you survive so. It was um, it was gut wrenching. Is that what you did, Doug? You then checked yourself into the hospital. Yeah, I I did, and uh, I you know frankly that that day I can remember uh, because I you know I was so worried about financially what would happen to my family uh, with me being the you know the sole uh, earner in our family. I I just told the doctor to shoot me now because I was you know I thought I didn't know what the you know with the, with uh, something like uh, cancer I didn't have any idea what my insurance would cover or wouldn't cover. And I was afraid that my family was going to end up in back bankruptcy. So we, we went down that, that next day and, and um, checked into the hospital at the University of Iowa. Yes. Yeah. And so what did you experience during the next 12 months? Well, then during the next 12 months, um, actually the next seven months, I, I went through uh, five chemo, uh, chemotherapies. I, um, uh, you know, when I went in, when I got into the hospital, my uh, bone marrow was 84% cancerous, and immediately they said um, you've got a, less than a 10% chance of survival here. But it got worse because they also found out I had monosomy seven, uh, with the tests that happened during the first week. And in, what what monosomy seven is is uh, a condition where your uh, chromosome, your my in this case my seventh chromosome, wasn't duplicated. So they said it's going to be di- more difficult. So uh, by the time I went through the five chemos, I had less than a 2% chance of cancer uh, remission. And uh, so I had to do something. Uh, I, I felt I needed to do something else. And one of my friends from Israel actually contacted me, and, and um, we were in, in contact having a weekly meeting. And he had suggested I uh, read a book by Joe Dispenza. I think you've had Joe on your program, um, it, which was which was called "Breaking the Habit of Being Yourself," and I had had some success meditating earlier in my life, and so I started meditating. In addition to doing a number of things, in fact, I created much to much like what I did for my business. I'd always been creating dashboards. I, in essence, created a new dashboard just for my health to monitor uh, my habits of meditating every day. You know, making positive affirmations. Uh, exercising every day, and then and then researching ways to possibly find another way to um, uh, you know cure my cancer. So that was kind of my routine, and and I did something different as well when I got into the hospital, which was uh, the first thing I did is I decided I'm not going to wear the house hospital gowns and everything else um, because I felt that would you know mean I was a victim of what was going on. I said I just decided I was going to get up every day and dress. Um, like I, I did when I was home and, and, and at work. And in fact, after the first week, the uh, um, uh, physician assistant there asked me, uh, you know, I asked him, can I work from uh, the hospital? And I ended up actually working from my hospital bed uh, for the uh, nearly uh, seven months, eight months that I was in the hospital, which, uh, which kind of ticked off some of the uh, people uh, nurses and doctors, because I would have signs on my door that would say, you know, in a meeting or I'm meditating, and which meant they couldn't enter, uh, which was 
not something you probably see too much at a hospital. But you know what? I, I wish it was something we saw more of because you are a testament to why I do this work and the purpose of this work. And, and you're right. Dr. Joe Dispenza has been on the show a few times. And what you just shared was that you were in a situation where many people would say, this is it, I'm done. I, you know, they would check out and really give up. But at the moment when they were telling you you had a 2% chance of survival was when you, I would say, got your head in the game, so to speak. You turned it around. And do you feel that you had the, the that you were really the person that, change this around? Do you credit yourself for your survival? Well, I certainly have to give myself credit for the outcome. I, I would say, you know, the me and the creator, okay, because I think I believe that there was, you know, powers beyond me that helped, helped me. But I, I believe I helped set the stage by having the discipline and believing, you know, I think as we talked about before, I'm responsible. I, I felt responsible for why I got cancer, uh, which, which frankly, the first day or two I beat myself up about. But frankly, uh, the truth is, is if I was responsible for uh, somehow unconsciously or whatever getting cancer, then I was also responsible for being able to get rid of cancer. I, I had a doctor that told me this is about, you know, after the five um, chemotherapies that I had, uh, you know, that looked at my chart when I got back uh, home and she was, we were doing some transfusions. She said, Doug, go home, uh, spend the, what time you have remaining with uh, your family and your loved ones. And, and the truth was I, I had uh, been meditating and I never believed I was going to die. I can't explain why I felt that way, but you know, um, I, I did, I just didn't feel that way. And I remember after that meeting, meditating, uh, with the after the doctor, I had got I was getting transfusions. I meditated, and after that meditation, I realized, you know, as part of Dispenza's meditation process, um, you you go through a, an element of deciding how you're gonna how how is it gonna be when you make it out. And I realized that I hadn't been envisioning that. I hadn't been feeling it in my heart. And when I got back to the hospital the next time, um, something miraculous occurred there in my hospital room uh, that gave me the idea that I was going to be cured. And uh, four weeks later, I discovered I was cured uh, when when they did the final clinical trial, which um, eventually got me free of my cancer. Doug, what were you visualizing during those meditations? Um, I, I, it would probably take me too long to tell you the whole process, but in one of the, the last pieces of the process that Dispenza has you do is... Uh, Imagine or envision what it would be like when, whenever, whatever trial or whatever challenge you're trying to overcome, you're through, you're past that. And I envisioned myself on a beach in Hawaii. My son, my children were coming. My wife and I were there. And frankly, I was there to speak uh, to a group that on how I had managed to con conquer my cancer. And uh, so uh, when I got back to the hospital after this doctor had told me to, uh, that, you know, to just live the rest of my life and kind of give up, more or less, uh, I would meditate. And when I would finish the meditation, there were several times when I came out of that meditation literally crying because I had I, I had been there. I'd been on the beach. I'd been in front of those people speaking at what had happened. And very shortly after that I uh, is when the miracle occurred that I, you know, I got a picture on my screen that told me, my cancer was going to be cured. 
Uh, I went through the clinical trial, and um, when one night I'm I'm home uh, because when you get um, you know the the uh, you, they drill into your back to get your um, biopsy. Uh, they tell you to go home for a couple of days because it takes you a couple of days to get um, the uh, results from that. And I got a call about 9:30 at night uh, on a warm summer night in July, and it was from my doctor. And he said, "Doug, I don't normally call my patients this late at night, but." I don't normally have this good a news either to tell him. And he said, Doug, the results of your biopsy came back and there's absolutely no trace of cancer in your bone marrow. Doug, in addition to everything that you just described to us that you did, did you make any other lifestyle changes? Uh, You know, um, lifestyle changes, I I was conscious more of what I was eating, but I don't think I I made um, real real choices there that that um, significantly altered my my diet i lost a lot of weight in the hospital which which was i think normal through through chemo but the main thing i did was the meditation uh i would meditate an hour probably sometimes two three hours a day you know sometimes i'd wake up in the middle of the night and i might be getting um anxious about it and i and instead of being anxious about it i would meditate um and um and other than that i did consciously make an effort to um, every day be positive, to, to dress normal, not wear the you know the gowns that people would normally do, um, and um, and then um, also just say positive affirmations. I'm a big believer in positive affirmations, and anytime I would get uh, a feeling of uh, concern or anxiety about it, I I would just repeat uh, an affirmation that I would have to keep myself focused on uh, you know the outcome and a positive uh, view on life. So. And so by dressing yeah. up the way you did oh. and, and showing up for life, you at that moment decided you weren't going to die. You were going to have your life back. Exactly. I, I took, in my mind, I just simply decided I'm going to be responsible for this. And I believe I'm going to, you know, I'm going to survive and thrive. Um, the, the par- uh, I'm not sure if um, our listeners would be familiar with the Stockdale paradox, but in essence, uh, he was uh, Admiral Stockdale was the um, highest-ranking um, Vietnam prisoner of war, and he had um, he has a quote which, in essence, says, "I believe that by uh, that I would come through the situation." I think he spent seven years in um, uh, the prison in uh, you know North Vietnam, and he said, "I believe I was going to come through this and be better than what I was for having done it," and I never gave up faith. That that was what what was going to happen, and um, it's uh, it was a powerful reminder to me that I was going to come through this and be a better person than I had before I came through came into it. You were given a two percent chance of surviving. Did any of the doctors that were working with you? Did any of them ever say to you, "What did you do, Doug? Why are you still here?" <laughs> Uh, I don't recall anybody really asking me that. No, I mean I do have, you know, my uh, my doctor uh, afterwards. Um, in, fr- in fact, I don't know that any of them told me I only had a two percent chance of survival until after I survived. But um, one of my doctors would say, has said to me several times, you know, you're a medical miracle, Doug. Uh, people just don't come through this like you did, and and so, but nobody ever really asked me what I did differently. 
Um, well, that's, you know, I ask everyone that question who's in a, a situation similar to what you've just expressed, right. because I know if I was a doctor and I was looking at a patient that I was viewing as a medical miracle, I would say, what did you do so I can tell other people? Yeah, and I, I, my guess is they they believe that the, the medicine, the chemotherapy was ultimately responsible for it, the clinical trial. And and that's, you know, because their their belief system is, Medicine works, you know, and um, if you ask me, I would say the the meditation, you know, really is what uh, helped me. I was fortunate, um, Joan, that I was healthy, you know, even when I got to the clinical trial. Um, Dr. Carter explained, I interviewed him afterwards for my, you know, the book I'm writing um, uh, and have written, uh, what what the difference was in his mind. And he, he felt that he said... By the time most people go through five chemotherapies and get to a clinical trial, in most cases, they're not even in a position to, to be able to get a clinical trial. So I, I just believe the doctors have such a infallible view of the medicine uh, that they're, and, and the applications that they use that, that that's just naturally what they think. And they move on to the next patient. They're busy people, you know. Yeah. So I have a friend who was recently diagnosed with chronic myeloid leukemia. And I remember the day her chemotherapy pills arrived at her home. I happened to be there that day. And she Mm. wanted to go into this journey with the mindset of welcoming the medication into her body, um, you know, visualizing herself healing, because what she believed is if she was so fearful of the chemo and she was going to be afraid of all of the side effects that are listed and the list is long, she would drive herself crazy and make herself sick. So what she decided to do was bless the chemotherapy the day it arrived and welcome it as her friend into her body. And I have to say, she has not experienced any one of those side effects to this date. You know, we pray that continues, but I think it has a lot to do with the mindset. I I would, um, you know, I think you, you, your other, uh, right? Change your attitude, change your life. I think that is so true. I, I think, you know, I never, I never imagined the chemo treating me badly or anything else. I never was afraid of the chemo. And your, your friend really is a great example of that idea of change your attitude, accept it, bless it, uh, believe that it's going to be, uh, you know, save your life. And um, I think the outcome becomes much different if you're, if you're accepting and have the right attitude about it and expect positive things. I agree. Yeah. And, and that's why I love doing this show with you today. So Doug, for someone who has a new diagnosis and is facing a journey similar to what you experienced, what do you say to that person to offer him or her hope? Uh, you know, I think that, that, you know, that's a challenge depending on what, what the person is experiencing. If, if uh, you know, One of the things I found is that, that health, depending on how you feel, uh, that can really have a great effect on your mindset. But if you can accept the idea that you're responsible and believe that, that things can, um, that you can have control over it, control everything that you can control your attitude. I think attitude is so important as you well know, and, and then look for other, look for other aspects of how you can possibly uh, uh, treat this and, and attack it. Uh, Because um, in, in reality, Take control of what you can control, and you'll feel much better about what, going through it. Whereas if you're just submissive to what's going on, you 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 lose control of um, how of the outcome as well. In my mind, so I would just tell them to be very very positive, uh, 
pray, whatever, you know, meditate, whatever it is, exercise, do whatever is in their power, schedule, create a dashboard and figure out here's, here's how I am going to be working with whatever the medicine is you're going to plan to use to uh, achieve the outcome that you want. Be a partner and be responsible for the outcome. And I think they'll find that they, uh, they get a better outcome than they would otherwise. I couldn't agree with you more because, as you said, doctors look at this as the medicine will do the job, and it will. The medicine will do what it's supposed to do. But equally, if not more important, is your role in that. You have to work as a team with the treatment. You have to take charge of your life. Like you said, meditate, get your head in the game, practice gratitude, eat nutritionally, move your body, anything you can do to aid the healing yeah, there's a there's an interesting book by Emmett Fox that says, um, uh, in essence, <clears throat> that, that um, everybody has a different God. Okay, my God, I believe can cure cancer. Okay, your God might not, <laughs> and and really, it is your belief system that determines the outcome. I feel um, it, it. You know, is that a hundred percent true? I don't know, but it certainly has proven its way in my life that if that if I believe I'm going to be able to be cured by this. And that, that's what I did. And that's, I set out with the intention of, of, of achieving that and looking at what were my options? What are the activities that I can do to make this possible that I'm going to survive this cancer and I'm going to come out better for it. Um, and if you look at the challenge that way, that not only am I going to survive this, I'm going to come out better because of it. I think that now you've got a, now you've got a, uh, a purpose to live and a reason to live and, and actually prove to everyone that um, this is not going to defeat you. Doug, you have such an inspiring story, and I know you're working on a book now, and, and, and I know when that book comes out, it is going to change lives. And when it does, I want to have you come back on the show. So thank, thank you, you for being here. Thank, thank you. you for sharing so openly and honestly, because as I said, you are going to help so many people. Thank you, Joan. Thanks so much, and thank you for the opportunity to speak with you. And I love I love your whole uh, approach here with change your uh, attitude, change your life. Uh, it's something I certainly and wholeheartedly believe in. Thank you for having me. This is Conversations with Joan. Stay with us. We'll be right back. Do you feel lost on your journey to health and happiness? Then let us guide you on your path, personalized actions towards health. Your path is a series of choices you act on every day. We guide you on a personalized journey of dietary, exercise, genetic, supplement, and lifestyle choices that lead you to optimal health and happiness. Often taking the road less traveled leads to liberation. Your path is personal. Your journey, like you, is unique. Take action today. Head to bestpathforme.com. Again, that's bestpathforme.com. An invitation to appear on a radio show or podcast provides you with the opportunity to showcase your knowledge while promoting yourself, your products, and your business. It can elevate you as an expert, boosting your reputation, but only if you make a good impression. 
As a producer and radio host who has conducted more than 2,000 interviews, I have experienced all kinds of conversations. Some are great and leave the audience wanting more, while others are uninteresting, significantly diminishing the guest's appearance. In my training program, It's Your Time to Shine, I provide valuable information that will empower you to make media appearances more impactful. You work hard to get the booking, so don't waste the opportunity because of a lack of skills or preparation. To learn more about how I can help you shine like a pro, visit cyacyl.com slash media training. That's cyacyl.com slash media training. productive life, but sometimes we just need a little help. Our Coach On Call experts provide strategies to help you live your best life now. Joining me today is Odette Coronel, a coach who helps people create the life and relationships they want. She is here today to discuss how to stop sabotaging our relationships. Welcome, Odette. Thank you so much for joining us. Hi, Joan. Thanks so much for having me on the show. So Odette, as a relationship coach, you see so many different types of marriages and relationships, and you see some of the things, the mistakes that most of us make. What do you mean when you say sabotaging a relationship? What type of behavior is that? You know, Joan, your mind is always trying to protect you. There are certain habitual patterns of thinking and behaving that you've formed subconsciously over time. These patterns are formed usually in childhood as ways to help you navigate the world. They're intended to protect you physically and emotionally. Sometimes these beliefs and behaviors are formed as a result of trauma, but not always. The patterns of thinking and behaving are usually created as a result of a combination of things, such as your personality, your culture, your environment, your family, your education. And we all engage in self-sabotaging behaviors to a certain extent. Although they're meant to protect you, these behaviors often work against your best interests. Shirzad Shemaine, he's the founder of Positive Intelligence, Inc., and he boils it down to 10 possible ways that human beings tend to sabotage themselves. He calls them your saboteurs. Always judging and criticizing, being hypervigilant and anxious, perceiving yourself like a victim, and patterns of avoidance are a few examples of how we can sabotage our relationships. Now, it's very normal to have saboteurs. These sabotaging behaviors are present for each of us to different degrees. Odette, do you think there's ever a time when someone would actually want to sabotage their relationship? You know, Joan, it's not a matter of wanting to sabotage their relationship. You may sabotage your relationship because the patterns and behaviors have become so ingrained. It's like you're functioning on autopilot. You're often not even aware that you're doing it. It's a form of self-preservation that we engage in subconsciously. The problem is that we don't need protection and you're not actually in danger. And rather than protecting you, they limit your potential and negatively impact your relationships. How can we recognize if we're engaging in self-sabotaging behaviors? You can recognize if you're engaging in self-sabotaging behaviors anytime you experience a negative emotion for an extended period of time. So negative emotions are meant to alert us to something. They're a signal that something is wrong and perhaps some action is required on your part. But continuous feelings of negative emotion, whether it's frustration, anxiety, self-doubt, that's when they begin to sabotage you, and especially your relationship. For example, if you're insecure and jealous, and you're constantly worried that your partner's going to leave you, and you're repeatedly questioning everything he or she does, or you're making unwarranted accusations, 
So your intention may be to preserve the relationship and ensure that your spouse doesn't leave you, but the result of that behavior may be that you're actually pushing your partner away. Or perhaps you're overly judgmental and critical of your spouse, and you're noticing and constantly pointing out every little thing he or she does wrong. This adds stress and anxiety to the relationship and informs your partner that you feel superior to him or her in some ways. Odette, what are a few steps we can take to stop doing this? If you want to stop sabotaging your relationship, the first thing I recommend you do is you go to my website, odettecornell.com, and at the bottom of the page, you will gain access to the saboteur assessment that was created by Positive Intelligence, Inc. This assessment will help you identify which are the top three ways you may be sabotaging your relationship. So the first step is awareness, so that when it comes up in your life or in your relationship, you can quickly identify it. By identifying the behavior, you will be able to intercept it. But remember, these behaviors are deeply ingrained in your brain. You have to actively create new neural pathways in your brain, new habits, new patterns of thinking, feeling, and behaving. But once you identify the sabotaging thought and behavior, pause and intercept it by engaging in a mindfulness activity. Find a way to get out of your head and into your body for at least 30 seconds. And then actively rewire your way of thinking by looking at the circumstance that triggered the behavior and then reframing it in a way that elicits more positive feeling. For example, if you find yourself wanting to criticize your partner, instead express how you feel without blame or judgment. Avoid using statements such as you always or you never. Focus on the situation and the behavior and not the individual. This way your partner doesn't feel attacked. I work on creating these new habits extensively with my private clients as well as with my group coaching clients. And once you discover the ways that you're sabotaging your relationship and work towards creating new patterns of thinking, feeling, and behaving, the sabotaging behaviors can no longer hijack you. You become empowered to think, feel, and behave in ways that will bring to your marriage more joy, love, and harmony. And once again, that assessment can be found on OdetteCoronel.com. Odette, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, Joan. We'll be right back. You've put your heart and soul into writing a book. So how do you reach your potential readers? Introducing the Change Your Attitude, Change Your Life book club, created for books that change lives. A book featured gets recognized. For more information, visit cyacyl.com slash book club. Conversations with Joan. I'm Joan Herman. Thanks for staying with us. Getting a health diagnosis can be scary. Studies show that having the right attitude can result in a more positive outcome. Joining us today to help us understand the power of the mind and how we can support our healing with thought is Mary Battaglia, a certified clinical hypnosis practitioner who is the founder of Metro Hypnosis Center. Mary helps people clear blocks create new habits, and tap into universal power energy for healing. She is the author of the book, Transformation Through Hypnosis, Relax, Clear Your Mind, and Step Into Your Power. Welcome, Mary. Thank you so much for joining us. Oh, Joan, it's a pleasure to be on your show today. So, Mary, when people receive a diagnosis, it it can be a very scary thing. And, you know, we have all types of concerns and fears that come up. How important is it to have the right mindset to take on this experience, to tackle whatever comes your way? 
Joan, it's so important to create a positive mindset, no matter what the issue is in the health uh, area. Your mind is going to be your best tool that you want to feed positive thoughts and you want to be able to bring that into the mind because that's what's going to translate into the body. You're receiving things, receiving information. So one of the things you can do is if you are faced with a diagnosis is actually write a positive affirmation. So you start feeding the mind positive thoughts so that you help yourself on your healing journey. So by doing that, Mary, will it help us make a shift from fear to faith? Yes, um, it will. The fear is the, the, sometimes we give the fear the power. We don't want to live in that fear, even though it's a scary time when you get certain diagnosis. If you stay in that fear, you give it the power, and then the mind is never going to be supportive for you with the positive. So it's really important to get that power in the beginning to yourself. I'm one of those types of people who doesn't like to take any type of drugs. I don't even like to take a Tylenol. So I always think about what if I get a diagnosis and I have to take some type of a medicine that scares me. How can a person learn to welcome whatever drug is prescribed in order to achieve maximum effectiveness and, and, you know, to not hinder what that drug can do to help? That's such an important question, Joan. Um, Most people don't want to take a medicine if they don't have to, right? So there's many situations that with our health issues that we have to take that medicine. So, for example, I work with uh, many different types of illnesses, but breast cancer is one of the things that I've worked with. And we call, um, when someone has to take the hormone therapy, we call it the golden pill. And we do a whole session on receiving this golden pill into the body, open and receiving. It's very important that you look at the pill as a tool for your healing and that you are open because if you take a, a medicine that you don't want to take, your body is going to be sending that message out to the medicine and you may not be as open to all the possibilities that the medicine can help you with. So it's very critical, even if you were getting IV uh, chemo or something like that, do a little blessing before they um, put it into you. There's many things that you can do um, and to create that relationship because that's what you're creating with the medicine and that you can visualize seeing that medicine coming into your body and healing you, taking away the cancer cells, shrinking the tumor, all the things that the medicine is meant to. And even with just medicine for blood pressure, diabetes, and things like that, the same thing. See the blood pressure uh, going into balance. See the blood sugars going to balance. No matter what the illness is, how, uh, how severe it can be, there's ways of embracing the medicine to help you heal. We don't understand how powerful the mind is. Something that stuck with me for many years, a a long time ago, I interviewed Dr. Bruce Lipton, who is the author of the book, Biology of Belief. And in our conversation, he had shared with me about a study that was done on cancer patients who received chemotherapy. One group received the actual chemotherapy drug, and the other part of the study, the other group actually received saline. They never got one drop of chemotherapy, but because they were so fearful of the side effects that they had heard about losing hair and being nauseous, that the people who received saline actually exhibited the side effects associated with chemotherapy 
without ever receiving a drop of the medicine. And that has stuck with me all these years. And that is the power of the mind. Like you said, we all look at the medicine and we all can, every medicine has a side effect. But if we focus too much on all the negative things that can happen to us when we take a medicine, then we might bring that into our lives because we are expecting it, right? When we expect it, things tend to flow that way. So even with something with a placebo, um, where they're giving you the fleas, because you're so worked up about it, you might create that feeling of nauseousness or, or whatever it is. Not that you're trying to do that, but it's just coming to because you're expecting it. So the power of the mind to be open and the power of the mind to heal yourself is so important. Yeah, because as you just said, if if we have that suggestion and we focus on the negative and we can actually make the negatives happen, just imagine what we can do when we, we focus on the positive. That's That's right, because we can bring the mind and expand it into healing. And whatever that means to you, healing is different for everyone. So healing could be the visualization of seeing yourself and feeling yourself getting better. And if we can see yourself taking a medicine and feeling okay with the medicine, but that the medicine is uh, actually helping me feel better and that I don't have those side effects. So I see my stomach feeling calm. So I see that I have an appetite and then I can eat the food. So the mindset really can help support it. And even if you might get a side effect, it might be diminished because you're not so focused on it. Is hypnosis a good tool for us to keep in our arsenal whenever we get a diagnosis? How how can it help us to heal and, and then to move forward after? Hypnosis is a wonderful tool to have. With an illness, first of all, one thing that you're helping with with hypnosis is creating those positive thoughts. You are approaching it from a different place. We want to approach it from a positive space in your mind. We want to be open to the healing that we can get. And hypnosis can help you also release your fears. There's work that you can do within yourself to let go of the fear of the medicine or the fear of dying or the fears that we have. Because it's the fears that inhibit us and that make us even more fearful. So we want to find the balance and hypnosis can help you clear your mind so that you can then allow the positive to come in. So not all the overwhelming thoughts that are coming into you. Mary, how can our listeners work with you? So um, people can work with me online. I do uh, online Zoom sessions for hypnosis and they can um, check out my website at metrohypnosiscenter.com and I can help them whether it's an illness, uh, whether it's a medication or really any life issue hypnosis uh, can help you with. Is hypnosis just as effective doing it virtually? It is very effective doing it virtually. Um, We create this space. All you need is a quiet space on your end. Um, But that clearing of the mind and that relaxation comes through on Zoom or whether it's in the office. It's amazing how effective it is because um, I think we're all getting used to being on these uh, Zoom environments as well. And the energy and the work and the um, connection we need all comes through the audience. And once again, Mary's website is metrohypnosiscenter.com. Mary, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, Joan. This is Conversations with Joan. Stay with us. We'll be right back.
Do you have a visible bump on the side of the foot, tenderness in or around the big toe, difficulty moving the big toe, and or pain in the big toe when walking? If you answered yes to any or all of these questions, you may have a bunion. Hi. I am Dr. Anand Joshi, podiatrist practicing in Woodland Park, New Jersey at Advanced Foot Care of NJ LLC. Bunions are abnormalities of the feet that can cause a bump to develop on the side of the big toe joint. This can cause the toe to turn inwards. Women are more likely to have bunion pain due to increased pressures from narrow footwear. Having a family history of bunions is also a risk factor. Additionally, some conditions, including rheumatoid arthritis or polio, increase the likelihood of developing a bunion. Here are some things you can do to treat a bunion. Wear proper-fitting shoes without high heels. Also, using a bunion pad from a shoe store or drugstore helps protect a bunion from extra pressure. Applying ice for 10-minute increments with a cloth-covered ice pack can also help reduce the inflammation. A podiatrist can prescribe custom-made orthotics that can assist with stabilizing the deformity and eventually slowing down the progression of the deformity. If a person's bunion does not subside and causes continued pain, surgery may be necessary. If you'd like more information or to schedule an appointment, please visit our website, footpainnj.com. having a conversation in relationship and it's somewhat controversial, you probably want to be heard and be right. Quite often that's what we want. And so we're maybe a little defensive, but is that right? Or do we want a result? The result being we'd like to get along. Hi, I'm Lindsay Levinson, Quality for Life Coaching. And they are two different things, getting along versus being heard and being right. See, because being heard and right is our defense, and that connects to our ego. But ego's not really going to get you that far. If you want a result, then you're going to want to work with humility and truth. So if you've got a difference of opinion, I mean, for me, I'll quickly look for a reason to say I'm sorry. And it has to be true. If I don't know what I've done yet, then I will say, I'm sorry you're hurting. I've done something wrong here because you're hurting. But let's talk further so we can figure this out. And you don't want to talk at someone by saying you this and you that because people just shut their ears. You want to use words like we and use words like experience. I'm having this experience. I know your experience is different. There isn't a right or wrong. There's just different experiences going on here. So we just need to talk it through and land somewhere that feels really good for both of us. So you want to do a lot of that non-heated conversation so that you can both feel good, but nobody is charging at another person. It's not being heard and right. It's just working toward the positive result. Lindsay Levinson, qualityforlifecoaching.com. Look me up. I'd love to talk to you, help you in any way I might be able to. An invitation to appear on a radio show or podcast provides you with the opportunity to showcase your knowledge while promoting yourself, your products, and your business. It can elevate you as an expert, boosting your reputation, but only if you make a good impression. As a producer and radio host who has conducted more than 2,000 interviews, I have experienced all kinds of conversations. Some are great and leave the audience wanting more, while others are uninteresting, significantly diminishing the guest's appearance. In my training program, It's Your Time to Shine, I provide valuable information that will empower you to make media appearances more impactful. You work hard to get the booking, so don't waste the opportunity because of a lack of skills or preparation. To learn more about how I can help you shine like a pro, visit cyacyl.com slash media training. That's cyacyl.com slash media training.
guest today is Eileen Lashinsky, the founder and creator of Fine Body Freedom, a program developed for women who want to change their relationship with their bodies. For over three decades, Eileen battled with her own issues with body image, weight, and her relationship with food. After trying every diet on the market, she realized that the answers to her struggles were right inside her body. Since then, Eileen has been working with women to guide them to discover their own innate body wisdom and to find body freedom. Welcome, Eileen. Thanks for joining us. Thank you for having me, Joan. It's wonderful being here. Eileen, you say that the innate wisdom of the body is connected to our weight. What does that mean? I think we're coming to more of a recognition that there are certain things that our bodies do that are directed by uh, internal mechanisms, internal messages, and I would call that uh, the innate wisdom of the body. And, you know, we've been working together, Joan, for a, a long time, and so you know this, you know that this is my thing, that we were born knowing how to eat. And so the whole idea of hunger and satiety, we, we're, our bodies call us to eat, our bodies say we've had enough uh, at a certain point. Um, that's part of the innate uh, wisdom of the body. Eileen, if we all have this wisdom, what happens to us along the way? How do we lose this? I mean, a great example of what you're talking about, I, I have two sons and, you know, when they were growing up, we would have dinner and they would walk away with a French fry on their plate. And I would say to them, you can't eat one more French fry, but they would stop. And, you know, so they didn't lose that, but I did. So what is it that happens to us that we lose that ability to to push the plate away with the one French fry? So there are lots of different answers for this. Let me give you two that pop out of me. Um, In my family of origin and maybe yours, Uh, My parents grew up, they were Depression-era children, and when they had me and my sister, uh, they were still operating from that scarcity mentality of the Depression age. And so we were, and I'm an overweight kid, but I still was supposed to clean my plate. I was still supposed to have eat everything that was on my plate. There are lots of us who grew up with the clean plate club. And I hear women talk to me who are much younger than I am, that even though their parents didn't live through the depression, they grew up with a clean plate club mentality also. That could be about money scarcity. It could be about poverty. It could be about any number of reasons. But that's one of the things. So that's reason number one, Joan. Reason number two, look at the the social climate that we're in and have been, um, particularly since the uh, the influx of uh, social media, media of all types, but social media, that basically we are inundated with so many messages that say you can have uh, a different body. You can fix the body that you have by doing this, whatever the advertising message is. It could be about an exercise program. It could be about a diet. It could be about a body sculpting surgery of sorts. Um, So we are inundated with those kinds of messages along with 
the messages we see on social media uh, that are photoshopped, they're airbrushed, they're elongated. And so uh, a lot of times we're seeing uh, bodies of even people that we might know uh, who have what we might consider an ideal body and we want it and we want to fix it and we want to do it now. And so we buy into the images and the messages. Every time we as parents are forcing our children to clean their plates, we may be altering the program of our natural innate body wisdom. You hit the nail on the head, Joan, right there. Um, I would love parents to hear this this message and to hear the message that we as uh, adults in the lives of children need to encourage those children very, very early on in life to listen to, firstly, their hunger messages and then also listen to the satiety messages to sit with a child while he or she is eating and to be able to say, uh, do you feel differently now that you've had uh, 10 bites of food than you did when you first started eating? Talk to me about that. Tell me all about that. I want to know how differently you feel. Over time, if parents can encourage that kind of dialogue and that mindset and body set in children, we are encouraging kids to listen to their bodies and they're not losing, as you said, that satiety signal. And you know, it's, it's absolutely something that we need to start to pay attention to because we have an obesity epidemic with our children and they are sicker than they have ever been before. I, I totally agree with you. You know, we go to restaurants and they serve us these huge plates of food. And if you grew up in the food, the clean your plate club, you're going to eat the whole thing, as opposed to what happened to just normal size food on a plate, or the fact that um, you know parents again can be talking to kids about, all right, so just remember, sweetie, you don't have to eat it all. We can take it home. And guess what? When you're hungry again, you can have this yummy, yummy food the next time you are hungry. If you would like to learn more about Eileen and her work, you can visit her website, findbodyfreedom.com. Or as always, to hear more from Eileen, you can visit our website, cyacyl.com slash Eileen. Eileen, thank you so much for joining us. My pleasure, Joan. Thank you. Lovely to be with you. You've put your heart and soul into writing a book. So, how do you reach your potential readers? Introducing the Change Your Attitude, Change Your Life book club, created for books that change lives. A book featured gets recognized. For more information, visit cyacyl.com slash book club. I hope you found the show informative. At Change Your Attitude, Change Your Life, we believe that knowledge is power. Take what you've learned, apply it, and live your best life now. 
Remember that the information provided is the opinion of our guest and should never replace the advice of a professional who knows your personal situation. If you'd like more information, visit our website, cyacyl.com. That stands for Change Your Attitude, Change Your Life. While on our site, listen to past shows on demand, read the digital magazine, sign up for our mailing list, and be sure to follow the show on social media. Until next time, this is Joan Herman. Thanks for tuning in. The preceding pre-recorded program sponsored by Maximilian Communications.